I think there's kind of a kind of a trauma in my childhood of feeling like I didn't get to play enough. And it sort of has driven, it's a metaphor that drives me throughout my life and throughout my creativity. It's rare, but when you tragically find patients who really cannot play at all, that's really kind of a very bad prognostic sign, unfortunately. You know, that something something very terrible happened that that park got shut down. Hopefully we can bring it bring it back to life. In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Scott Kellogg and Amanda Garcia-Torres. Amanda and Scott are co-directors of the Chairwork Psychotherapy Initiative, an innovative therapy training organization which empowers mental health professionals to integrate chair work with their therapeutic approach. I attended one of their trainings in September 2023 and it was incredibly powerful, turning over many of the common assumptions I held about how therapy should be done. In this conversation, we explore the therapeutic benefits of viewing human beings as containing multiple different parts, the two origins of the inner critic and why it may be behind the vast majority of mental health problems, how chair work can be applied to heal addiction, trauma and a wide range of issues, how this approach helps to create space and distance internally from maladaptive coping parts that may be having a negative effect in our lives, and more. You can learn more about Scott and Amanda's work by going to transformationalchairwork.com. Okay, I'm joined here with Dr. Scott Kellogg and Amanda Garcia-Torres. Um, we're going to be talking today about chair work and psychotherapy. And to get started, Amanda, I want to ask you, from a mental health point of view, what's the benefit of looking at ourselves as having these different parts within? Yeah, so there's you know a number of benefits of kind of carrying this belief of the multiplicity of self, right? That we're all made up with many parts modes or energies and i think that the one one major thing that that gives us is incredible spaciousness and flexibility with maybe where we are on any given day in our life what's going on um gives us a way to understand very sh- strong or uncomfortable emotions and kind of have a little bit more patience or even empathy for them so instead of you know say you're, you're running late to to a work meeting you know something i can definitely relate to um instead of saying oh I'm a screw up I mess everything up I'm understanding myself as parts and I might say oh there's a part of me that's struggling with this or maybe there's a part of me that's very tired so that gives gives someone an opportunity to kind of understand their issue or their challenge in a different way and with that space we can you know try different solutions maybe just give that a little breathing room bring down some tension I think it's a really beautiful way of, um, of understanding ourselves and other people that allows for less judgment, more compassion, and then, yeah, space to move around. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And when I did the training with you guys in New York, one of the things that you said, Amanda, that really stuck with me was you have a basic approach of finding out what the deepest part of your client really wants and then fighting relentlessly for that part. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that and your your thinking behind this? Because this is not your typical approach to therapy. You know, this is quite this is quite radical in my view. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, so when we're thinking about you know when I think about myself as a clinician, and I think that chair work beautifully fits in with this, and just how I approach work in general. But I see chair work, and I see 
um, ourselves as clinicians as our sort of chief job or our mission is to advocate for what's in the patient's heart and what their goals are. So any work that I'm doing, I am constantly driven by what is my patient saying their pain is? What are they coming with and saying that they're suffering with instead of me deciding what their issue is or deciding where they should go? Um, and then once they shared with me their deepest their deepest desires or where they'd like to be as a person or in their life, then yeah, it's my job to be really almost annoyingly <laughs> uh, perseverant with that, that everything we're doing is in service of this. Everything we're doing is in service of this. So if someone, you know, wants to improve maybe how they are as a spouse in their marriage, then my work's going to be, all right, well, then we're just going to be on. What are the, what's the part of you that maybe has some anger? anger issue was the part of you that desires to connect all right let's let's bring the spouse in imagine that they're here let's talk with them and if that person resists or says ah you know i'm kind of kind of over that i'm not really sure then i see my job is really checking that out carefully not saying okay whatever you want to do but saying well you came in to this to this work saying i want to save my marriage i want to be a better spouse has that changed has your heart said no, or is there something else going on? Um, and yeah, some some patients might find that maybe lovingly annoying <laughs> sometimes, but I see that as a way that I am able to passionately care for the people I work with. That I'm that's that's how I advocate for them in their lives, and I think that you know I get much of that that spirit and inspiration from from Scott. And, and his work and how he's approached the mission of what he's created and taken on and what we've shared with the world. So yeah, he's definitely been a big influence there. I've seen it in action and it's, it's quite powerful and you can, you really get the sense when, when you're watching you that you're really fighting for the client, like you're fighting for their best interests. And it's, I know I haven't seen it like that before. So it's really, really cool. Um, Scott, Amanda, before I move on to Scott here, I just want to say, could you maybe move closer to your mic or uh, maybe speak a bit, a bit louder? I can hear you, but I'm just thinking about the listeners in, in, uh, in the recording. It's a little bit quiet, but it's not too bad. All right. Um, Scott, I wanted to ask you, I've heard you say elsewhere about 99% um, of psychological problems this might be i'm obviously paraphrasing here but 99 percent of psychological problems could be attributed to either the inner critic or responses to the inner critic can you maybe let me expand on that a bit and uh, you know i want to know how you arrived at that that kind of understanding right um <clears throat> well that's actually a quote i'm quoting somebody else um so i'm quoting uh, uh james and Catherine elliott um, who developed um, a form of chair work dialogue called anthetic dialogues. And it's kind of like an REBT, but they focus centrally on the, uh, on the inner critic and um, kind of confronting and, you know, it's, it's sort of battling the inner critic is the center of things. And, um, I, you know, I've come to, you know, it's a metaphorical statistic, not a you know, not an actual one. But I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, 
you know, so you know, we we were talking about this before, but you know, so many diagnoses, depression, anxiety are very much driven by uh, inner critic attack. Other things are kind of coping modes. You know, we know in addictions, um, worms are talked about. Drug use as an escape from the inner critic. You know, as a way to temporarily get away from it and things like that. Um, you know, most people feel terrible about themselves. Um, there's a uh, I, I read this interesting thing, uh, kind of a religious uh, um, article I was reading, which is very, very striking to me. I don't know if it's true, but so, you know, in, in Christianity, it says, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, right? And the, the guy writing it said, well, in the old days, everybody loved themselves. So to say that made a lot of sense, you know? <laughs> But nowadays everybody hates themselves and it's kind of a joke like you know if you treated other people the way you treat yourself would we need to call the police you know <laughs> and we've heard that phrase there before so uh you know we are we are very harsh on ourselves and very cruel to ourselves and um so i do spend a lot of time with the inner the inner critic the other thing which i think we, we talked about before is there actually are two different kinds of inner critics at least that's something that that we've been Arguing, and I see lately Wendy Bahari and Robert Brockman have written a piece echoing this. And one, what I call the internalized abuser, is a very classic kind of Freudian understanding of the superego, where you know we um, we grow up with with voices, people, you know, family members, relatives, um, religious institutions, schools. I think for, especially later on for peers in middle school can be a voice. It's very harsh. We, they kind of live within us. And it, it, technically, I would almost say they're actually probably are not even part. They're more like in, internalizations of other people, but we kind of experience them part. And they're very, you know, they're very cruel and, and damning. Um, but what the Stones first came up with, and you see this in IFS as well, is this idea that the critic actually develops as a coping mode early on in life to keep the, the patient safe the individual safe so like you know you better do all at school watch what you say all these admonitions about our behavior so that something bad doesn't happen and um schema therapy roots in you know certainly had favored the first one for a long time i think now we're moving to kind of a two critic model and so one of the first things i do is actually uh, as a patient to move to another chair and I actually talked to the critic and I wanted to basically do a differential diagnosis of the critic. You know, you're telling, you're telling somebody that they need to lose weight or they need to work harder or whatever it is. How come, you know, why does this matter to you? These kind of questions. Um, Leslie Greenberg, I think very powerfully kind of said, you know, like, what's the core issue kind of, why is this important? Why do you care? Right. You're getting kind of the, you know, and what you find is in these abuser critics, they really hate the patient and you can really feel the hatred come through. But with a kind of coping mode critic, you feel the anxiety. You know, if he, if he doesn't work harder, it's going to be a disaster. If he, you know, if he speaks up, he'll make a fool of himself. You know, these are, you know, these kinds of things come out and then you kind of can work from there. They're kind of different strategies depending on the critic. Um, but so that, you would, you would disagree with Dick Schwartz's notion that there are no bad parts like that you wrote that book in that. Right. 
I kind of say they're mostly no bad parts. <laughs> that's that's kind of my slight amendment to uh, Dick Schwartz's work. That's your uh, next book title. Yeah, mostly yeah, right. Um, you know, and 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 Jeff Young, you know, had worked with so many. You know, he's a, just a genius. Was genius in general, but a genius with borderline personality disorder. You know, that's you know extraordinary compassion for borderline patients, and you know, and. Uh, these are highly, you know, there's a lot of, not everybody, but there's a lot of abuse in that diagnostic group. So it's not surprising he hears these voices of, of uh, you know, horrendous parental figures or abusers, you know? So in if you go to that highly traumatized population, you're probably going to hear a lot more of it. Um, my percent, my kind of informal, another informal statistic was like, it's 80-20, 80% coping mode and 20% internalization. Rob Brockman says in Australia, it's 1885-15. Um, probably depends on the culture. Um, but this has been a great revelation. I spent a lot of time talking to inner critics, actually, um, in my work. And, um, you know, and, and trauma can lead, you know, as well, can, can lead to inner critic or activate inner critic issues as well. So that makes, does that make sense to you? I mean, we, you've talked to a lot of people. Does that sort of land with you in these kind of it it does it does and my understanding of what you said is and correct me if i'm wrong here but you're sort of saying that there are two ways an inner critic inner critic can sort of show up for a person one could be where the person has internalized an external abuser like someone that has given them a hard time in the past and that's become not part of them but it's sort of you know it's living within them and then there's another part where the person will develop um a protector part or a coping mode that sort of like keeps the person right, keeps them on their toes. It's really harsh on them to avoid getting that kind of abuse again in the future. Is that sort of what we're talking about? Well, it, it may not be that they would be abused again. It may be just more like, you know, it often develops around the age of six, going to school is sort of keep them safe from some sort of, you know, social disaster, or there may have been some kind of trauma that took place where this is the lesson of the trauma. Well, you know, so one thing I didn't say was these coping mode critics, while while they can be dramatically unpleasant, can actually be quite helpful to people growing up. But usually when they've come to the office, it's like they're no longer, you know, this is the classic schema therapy coping mode argument. They're no longer helpful anymore, right? They're, it's either too much or they're, you know, and Freud pointed out the inner critic is not connected to reality. You know, they're just so running on fear that they're actually interfering with the patient's functioning. And for those critics, we want them to kind of step back. You know, we want them to actually become like an ally or a coach to the patient. You know, it's not going to go away, but we want to change their role. And then, you know, the person kind of can say, I, I can deal with this. I'm not, I'm not um, four years old. We, we had a very funny uh, experience in Australia. Uh, we were working with this woman and I, which I was talking to her critic and she's going on about this critic, you know, and, very repressive to the to the woman. I said, you know this, you know this is a thirty two year old woman you're talking about, and the critic went, "What? She's thirty two? What? When did that happen?" It was just, it was very funny. It's very spontaneous. She's I think she's like six years old or something. It was quite a dramatic thing, you know. Which I don't think she was faking. I think she was just like it. Just was very amazing to see that, and that was a beautiful example of this coping mode not being in touch with reality anymore. You That's know. so interesting. Yeah. Um, the whole place was like laughing and kind of awestruck by this. 
unexpected emergence, you know, of a part. Um, one of the things I've learned from you guys is that maybe the central role of psychotherapy is to strengthen the inner leader or the healthy adult or the ego. Um, so something that comes up for me here whenever I think about this is that when you're doing your work, um, how do you know when you're speaking to the inner leader? How do you, how are you sure? Because there are some people that will have a very high functioning um, coping mode or protective part that's highly successful in one domain in life, but it's not the inner leader. You know, so Amanda, have you any thoughts, any thoughts on that? I would say, um, you know, in my experience, one of the ways to sort out if when I'm with someone, is their inner leader present or do they even have a fully developed or strong present inner leader is what's their level of consistency and how they're showing up in the various areas of their life. Are they maybe just totally, you know, dominating all their projects and so highly successful at work and their career, but for whatever reason in their home life, they're completely falling apart. Or when they go to the grocery store, they just, they just will have a meltdown if they can't find the eggs, <clears throat> something, something very different. So things like that are very big indicators that, hmm, maybe this person operates more from a coping mode in certain areas of their life, but their inner leader actually isn't the one driving the bus. Because what the inner leader gives us is the ability to be fairly consistent in how we present. So, you know, so I tell patients when they ask me, well, what do you mean inner leader? What are you talking about? Um, what do, do you mean you want me to fake it till I make it? Or am I putting something on? I say, no, actually. Um, so what I like to tell them is, you know, so for example, as I'm with you and I'm talking to you now, Niall, um, you know, you sort of see I have a certain kind of demeanor, way of talking, way of being. My hope would be that if you ran into me in a few months, say on the street and, you know, maybe I just got out of a party or something, you know, it's the weekend um, that after you run into me, you wouldn't be so confused and shocked. You wouldn't have that moment of, oh my gosh, I barely recognize that person. What's that? And you might say, oh, that's funny to run into her. Take me a second. But my hope would be that there is still no matter what, even if I'm not in like my work mode, that there's a level of consistency in my demeanor and my presence and who I am as a person, right? So sort of like a cut gemstone or diamond. So when I'm working, I'm putting one facet in the front, right? That's my work facet, my therapy facet. But it's still the same stone. So you should still be able to recognize me enough and be able to connect with me enough, even if there's another facet in front. Um, so, so it's very important to have something like an inner leader that's that's the you know, discernment, adaptability, all of that stuff. Um, and it also helps the clinician to not only advocate for, for the patient, going back to that theme, but also kind of stay, take a step back and also have a stance of humility. Because I'm not in charge of making decisions for the patient's life or telling them where to go or how to be. It's their inner leader. I'm not the expert here. So, yeah, I think it... um works in a really, really neat way. Um, but yeah. So a, a sign of a healthy internal world would be that someone shows up 
not equally well in all areas, but relatively well in multiple different domains of their life rather than just being amazing at their work or amazing at one specific thing. So that's a good, and if someone is really successful in one area, but is lacking that in all areas, it's a sign that it's a coping mode that's running the show. And that's a, that's a problem. It's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. And someone needs to have a center, right? And we see people who kind of will dramatically sort of shift how they are. Um, it's because there's no one in the middle. There's nothing in the center, giving them that consistency. Maybe they're very volatile. It's like, ooh, you don't have a driver. <laughs> <laughs> but then the this brings me in the bag are just taking turns. No one has no one has map. <laughs> like, okay, that's fun. <laughs> and this brings me to another question I wanted to ask you guys, and maybe they'll go to Scott for this one. Um, there's this, you know, the concept of in Buddhism of no self. Um do you feel there's any conflict here? You know, this idea, you know, the, the ego gets a bad rap in a lot of these kind of philosophies, everything. What's your what's your thoughts on this, Scott? I think there's a major battle there. Um, and um, may have, uh, you know, that's been a disturbing issue for me of the attack on the ego from so many um, spiritual or spiritually influenced psychotherapies. I think... Um, the whole point of psychotherapy, and Freud actually said this, is to strengthen the ego. And, um, you know, maybe this is, is partly an Eastern-Western difference, but um, I think many people are very confused about what the ego is, and then they're attacking something else. So, you know, I want what I want what I, when I want it is not the ego. That's actually the id in, in Freudian terms, or some sort of child self that's maybe an angry child in schema therapy mode, you know. That I have to get all the attention from the world is narcissism, and narcissism is another coping mode, a grandiosity coping mode in the face of, of a um, damaged ego or under underdeveloped ego or inner leader, as I would call it. So, um, you know, the um, the the inner leader, the ego, the inner leader is is the heroic self. You know, the the self that chooses values. It just says I'm going to live a life based on my values, that I can say yes, that I can say no, that I can persevere, that I can choose courage over fear. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done meditation or if you're a meditator, but you know, the, the, the idea to go and meditate when you don't want to is basically an ego decision, you know. <laughs> so without an ego, you're you know, but you know, they're um um you know, maybe the language is getting getting confused. Yeah. Uh, they probably should not be using the word ego because it's a word from psychotherapy and in this, in this is kind of a non-psychotherapeutic approach to the world. It's a you know, religious, spiritual approach. Maybe related to that, I do, I do think that mindfulness actually, I see as a capacity of the inner leader as a way of observing the other parts or modes in action, right? Because you, you know, in many patients, these other parts, you know, maybe fear, you know, whatever, anger, they're still stronger. They still take over the system. But the first step, and I say this a lot, is can you observe it? Can you label it? Right? And you see this in, in voice dialogue. So I, I feel like that is kind of an ego capacity or inner leader capacity. So that's where I think mindfulness can be helpful, but I see it as, as, a, as a part of the actually the, the ego or the inner leader. It's a skill that we can learn from a psychotherapeutic perspective. And um, yeah, go ahead. It makes me think, you know, there is a lot in the popular culture around this idea that the ego is the, the source of almost every major mental health problem, particularly like spiritual books and things, right? 
And then, you know, it's just, as you're speaking there, it strikes me that maybe there's like young people that really don't have this fully formed sense of self yet or inner leader yet. And then they read these books and then it could be potentially be quite damaging if they are, you know, reading that and they are realizing that, or they're thinking that this, this thing that they should be developing is something that they should be avoiding. You know, what do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I, you know, I would agree with you. I think that could be quite uh, disturbing, you know, and, and problematic. Um, there's, there's a man I like, Dr. Harry, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who's kind of a religious teacher and a, and a psychotherapy teacher in a way. And he talks about, you know, character, you know, and, and old fashioned sense of character. But what is, you know, what is it to be a man or a woman or a person of good character is to have a consistency over time and over place. Right? You know, and, uh, Zambardo said, you know, the heroic self is to, you know, under pressure to not kind of abandon your value system, you know, and these are all things about developing, strengthening this ego, you know, um, and, and, and both to say no to things and to say yes to things. And we all struggle with it. I mean, all, we all have problems with our, our egos. They're all damaged. They're all, you know, uh, not, not the way we want them to be, but, um, yeah, I mean it's two different worldviews, and I'm a, I'm in the Western world, you know, and I think, uh, I think that's that's important, um, and in psychotherapy, it's important, you know, moving things beyond that, then that's another that's another realm, not my expertise. But the word um, that comes to my mind for me here is integrity. That's maybe mm -hmm. kind of what we're aiming for, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's a very good word for this. Yeah. So we've been speaking a while tonight, and we haven't actually. <laughs> brought up the main topic of uh, conversation which is chair work uh so amanda what is chair work what's the aim and what why do you think it's so effective yeah so um <clears throat> chair work you know it's traditionally been been practiced and understood as an integrative experiential technique so it comes from uh psychodrama and gestalt therapy other integrative therapies along the way have expanded sort of shifted that and um, so we can understand it as an experiential integrative technique, or as myself and Scott practice it, as a standalone psychotherapeutic modality. And it's all about, you know, facilitating um, a dialogue so that someone can give voice to their inner parts or modes, or facilitating a dialogue so someone can engage in a in a dialogue or enactment between themselves and someone from their past, present, or their future. So it's all about dialogues, enactments, giving voice. So instead of talking about things or about other people or about issues, we are engaging directly and talking to and from them. Instead of talking about what's in my heart, I'm actually giving my heart a voice directly. So kind of giving them the phone, <laughs> letting them letting them speak, putting them on speakerphone. Um, so it's a very intense, energizing way of working. Um, that, you know, I kind of will compare it to the boot camp class. It's like if you're gonna sign up for the boot camp class, you're gonna sweat. You might be sore in some new muscle groups you didn't realize you had. But something's gonna happen. And something's gonna happen pretty much every time. Um yeah, so I think it's a such a fascinating, amazing way of working. Very cool. Now in terms of why this why this works, something I've heard you say in another interview was that maybe it's that we're creating so if you're working in chairs you're creating this space between different parts of yourself in the external world and then 
meet like for example if you are working with an inner critic and you can see your inner critic five meters away or five feet away then you're creating this this space in the external world but then that helps to create this differentiation and space within the internal world too and then that is for me that would be a very helpful thing because then these things aren't running you anymore they are uh there's a dialogue happening what do you what do you think yeah, I think there's an incredible advantage to spaciousness, um, which you know can be accomplished externally. Internally, I because I practice chair work, I prefer externalization of that. I think there's something not just to imagining space, but literally moving, creating a physical shift of some sort, I think is actually really key to going very, very deeply. So I can sense you are over there. I am over here. Let's talk. Let's do something about that. So that can make things a little less intimidating. I think it's also a much more powerful way to rebalance energies. Who or what is more powerful? So we have the advantage of, I can speak more loudly to you. I can stand up. I can sit up straighter. And that creates more of a sense of equality I think, between between these energies if that's what we're going for, which much of the time we are. Um, yeah, so I think this is a huge advantage to getting literal space from things from other people, forces, um, or bringing them very close to having that option, right? Can push something away that maybe has hurt me. But if I'm engaging with my inner child, they don't want them very close to me. You can have more of an intimate interaction. So I think it, yeah, gives space to, to stand up for oneself, rebalance the energy, and then to more literally nurture a part or an energy too. Big space is so important. Very cool. And how essential are chairs in chair work? <laughs> chair work actually isn't about chairs, so we should probably um, figure out a new a new name one day. So that's our tagline. Yeah, so chair work is not about chairs. It's actually about shifts. The most important thing is making, yeah, shift work, right? Working in a shift. Um, so... Yeah, so chairs are the sort of chair work is the, the traditional term. So we, we're following in a in a tradition, in a long tradition. And chairs are perhaps maybe the most useful tool to to facilitate the work, though really it's just about the shift. So you can do chair work without chairs. You can use post-it notes as placeholders on the ground. You can, you know, hold an object in one hand or the other. And, you know, because it's not about literally the chairs, you know, I can do chair work with someone over the phone, even if I can't see them, as long as they are making the shift as I instruct. So that's just moving about and moving things around. Just a quick break here to tell you about an exciting new membership we're developing, and then we'll get right back to the show. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is 97 pounds for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information. Very cool. So we've we've come up with a new uh, term for chair work, shift work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that'd be the title of your your first book, or I don't know if you've already Shift written work. one or not, but yeah. Chair work um, or shift work? Hmm. So in observing both of you guys do chair work or shift work, I would say, Amanda, this is a compliment, by the way, but I would say you're like a warrior. You are like, you know, you really go for it. And then Scott, you've got this sort of playful kind of curiosity, very, you know, you're just, you, you get the sense that you're playing, but in a serious way too, you know, where does this playful orientation come from for you? Um, I think you know, on a personal level, I think there's kind of a kind of a trauma in my childhood of feeling like I didn't get to play enough. And it sort of has driven, it's a metaphor that drives me throughout my life and throughout my creativity. Um, so I played sports, I played, I played music. In some ways I played with chair work. Um, and I think, um, you know, people have written about play as being a very kind of deep and profound thing. Winnicott talks about play as the essence of mental health, which I think is very beautiful. And he also, and I believe, you know, when you, it's rare, but when you tragically find patients who really cannot play at all, that's really kind of a very bad prognostic sign, unfortunately. You know, that something, something very terrible happened that that park got shut down. Hopefully we can bring it, bring it back to life. But, um, yeah, but I like Winnicott's idea of play as, uh, you know, um, kind of a healthy way to be. And yeah, for me, it's very creative. And um, it's also, you know, we, as you saw, we deal with some very profound and difficult stories and very painful things. And to use, you know, that can be a little way to kind of connect with a patient and, and be present with them. But um, for sure, for sure. Now, there am I right in saying there are four principles to this approach? Um, can you maybe tell us what those four principles are? Just just like the the overview, you don't need to go into too much depth here. But the, what what are the four principles that this is based on? Um, I should probably direct that. Uh, Amanda, do you want to give us yeah, that? I and then up. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what, Amanda, you give us the four principles, and then Scott, oh, no. if you give us the four, you give us the four dialogues. How about that? Swap that. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Let's swap it. So <laughs> I promise I know them. I promise. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Scott principles, Amanda dialogues. Yeah. So, uh, so suddenly she went back to some sort of, you know, final exam in junior high school that she hadn't studied for enough. And there was like, you know, you saw the, <laughs> the trauma. I'm the leader. I'm the inner leader. I can say trigger. yes. And I can say no. <laughs> and I said no. Yeah. Um, so these are four kind of overlapping ideas, but the four principles are, um, you know, the first is multiplicity of self and um, that we have different parts. And, you know, I think I've said this many times, but you know, John Rowan, who's the British uh, humanistic psychologist, just argued that parts work is the future of psychotherapy. And I think we're seeing more and more therapies that really are using parts, IFS being obviously an amazing one, Schema therapy, schema mode therapy be another one. Hopefully our work is one. Um, Compassion-focused therapy has some work with parts. You know, you're seeing this. I mean, even the Freud originally is parts, you know, it ego, superego defense is a part model. So parts have sort of moved through that. I think you see it in David Burns's work in um, CBT. It's, he doesn't quite say it, but it's implied a lot in his language 
Um, but parts to me is just is fantastic. And, you know, um, in other in other spaces, I sometimes say what, you know, if there's one thing to define a psychological approach to the human being is understand that they have parts. And I would say that's so essential to that. So not only is it useful to understand that people have parts, but also as we've been talking about, it's very helpful for them to give voice to these parts. That's sort of therapeutic to give voice to these parts. That's the second principle. The third principle is what Amanda said before, you know, is, is the opportunity to enact or reenact scenes for the past, the present, or the future. And that really connects us to the psychodramatic origins of chair work. Chair work begins in psychodrama, is, is then more developed in gestalt therapy, and then is, goes to the world. And that the fourth one, which we've talked about before, is that the ultimate goal of chair work, and I would really argue the ultimate goal of all the psychotherapy, is the strengthening of the ego or the inner leader or the healthy adult mode. And this is our true north. And, um, you know, so when you're a therapist, you know, where is the ego? Where is the inner leader? keep going back to that keep trying to find that part and that because the stronger the um, inner leader the more everything else lines up so in a way you know and this comes from our schema therapy origin we're almost kind of a trans-diagnostic approach because wh whatever the problem is it's always about parts and it's always about the inner leader in, in different forms it's always this kind of core dance um you know are, are pretty much for something about trauma stories, but pretty much that's it. So those are the four principles that we kind of anchor ourselves in. And then we have the four dialogues that Amanda is going to tell us about. <laughs> Before we go there, just a follow up. So do any, do you, either of you have experience working with clients that have quite extreme forms of dissociation? And have you found chair work to be in any, in any, any way helpful in those contexts? Does it... it I wouldn't say I've had a good, I haven't had a lot of experience for them, but in schema therapy language, dissociation is a coping mode, right? So it's, so it's dissociation itself is one form of coping. So you can, you know, you kind of talk to the patient, go to the chair, so you're the dissociated part. And often there's a negotiation with that part saying, you know, I'd like to go into this, into this child part, really, that, that's in a lot of pain. You know, uh, the inner leader wants to do the therapy, but you are coming in to protect. You know, and um, I would, how would you feel if I worked with this child? You can stay nearby if it gets too intense, but we're willing to step back a little bit. That's one thing. And then we also have the patient go to the inner leader chair and talk to the associate part and say, it's okay. I'm, I, I'm willing to do this work. I feel strong enough, but stay close by. So it's a negotiation, you know, with dissociation as a coping mode. And that, you know, that's a basic model. What I quote more commonly see is kind of a shutdown. I wouldn't say a full seal dissociated can have a shutdown. There's something, there's no emotion. The person's like dead, right? And that means you've just, they've, you know, dissociated in a, in a smaller way. So I don't know, that, is that helpful, that, that answer? Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, Amanda, four dialogues. Um, you're up. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, so the first, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll just say a, a sentence description of each. Keep it, keep it brief. <laughs> but the first is telling the story. So that's where we have someone move to a storytelling chair and they express a traumatic memory, difficult memory, something that happened to them. Or they can even work with 
a positive event that they experience, something they want to integrate. So it's telling the story. The second would be giving voice. That's where, again, we set up chairs, we have someone move after they establish their inner leader, and they embody or channel a part of them. So that's essentially what, what Scott was just describing with a shutdown, with a numbing part. So it's a way of engaging with them, getting to know them. And then the third, we can understand as relationships and encounters. So that's where, again, we're setting up the chair so that someone can have an imaginary dialogue or enactment with another person or force. So that can be someone from their past. They can speak to maybe a parent that has passed away. Um, they can engage with them in that way. So we have, let's see. And then internal dialogues. So that would be where we're bringing in, you know, for example, you know, two parts of a person and they're engaging with each other. So the parts of the modes are now having a back and forth dialogue. So you can understand that, you know, a common thing would be decision-making. So one side, someone will express, you know, I want to, I want to have this job. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to accept the offer. And then they move to the other side. They address the other part. You know, I hear what you're saying and I want to stay where I am. It's a way of engaging with with energies that are inside, bringing them up. Those are the four. So that's what did I start with? Telling the story, relationships and encounters, giving voice and internal dialogues. Yep. Okay. Cool. And one of the things that I found really interesting from the the certification with you guys was storytelling and how beneficial this can be as a therapeutic tool. So. Can you maybe tell us a bit about how you might use this in therapy and the, the importance of the third person? Why why you've opted for that over speak saying in a first person or a second person perspective? So I think um both myself and Scott are, are in agreement here with maybe why we've sort of gravitated toward third person storytelling over first and second that we both really appreciate the spaciousness. So not only in telling a story and, you know, you know, I'm Amanda and when I was five, something happened to me versus, you know, once upon a time, there was a little girl named Amanda. And when she was five, something frightening happened to her. So that's using third person voice. When we do that, again, it gives us space. So I guess you could also call it space work. Um, <laughs> my great person of confusion. <laughs> But um, so that gives us a, a way of getting space from from the story, from the narrative, and more freedom to work with it. Right? So new perspectives can come in. It's much harder to judge a protagonist in a story, judging someone else's story. Um, and it's also much harder to be unfair about how we see the story. So it very naturally kind of gets that door cracked open for some more empathy and compassion to come in for the protagonist of the story. That space might also help someone feel more comfortable to engage with the content, you know, especially if we're working with a trauma, that content can be very distressing or disturbing. So it can be a bit more comfortable to tell the story about someone else versus speaking in the eye. We would do that three times, you know, tell the story three times, we reset in between. And you can understand this also as a form of exposure therapy. So we all get used to the content clinician gets to learn about it um but yeah the third person kind of is an amazing way to sort of shift doing that work that i found just 
profoundly effective. Um, and yeah, that's, I rarely do the other forms now, although they do work, but I love this, this idea of, of getting the space, particularly with trauma. So we can have the hyper, hyper arousal, but also the space. I think it's a beautiful balance. I, I would I, I would add to that, um, you know, that having worked with addiction for a long time, you also see situations where the people are traumatized, but they feel they have some role in the trauma itself. I, I actually have a, a, a patient who was, you know, patients who were traumatized involved when they're doing criminal activities, you know. So there we have shame and we have guilt and we have responsibility, and this is, makes makes it very complicated. Um, and uh, third person storytelling gives them a way to be more distant in terms of shame and um, right because you know it's one is the fear and the disturbing aspect of the other is, is responsibility and guilt. This gives they can get more distance, and that is really incredibly helpful as well. And talk about that that person as as somebody else. That makes loads of sense. And at the workshop, I seen this in action where there was a woman who went through, I'm not going to say the details, obviously, but went through an experience and told the, the, the story in the third person three times. And you just noticed each time she told the story, it was getting easier inside. And you could see a massive relief in her by the time she had told the third story. It was totally changed for her internally. You know, um, so if you were just wanting to give a quick guideline to a mental health professional that wanted to try that, would it be you get the person to tell the story three times in the, and in the third person. Is there anything else you'd add on top of that to, to, to supplement what I've said there? Well, um, we, we always have someone move to a different place than where they were sitting before, where they usually sit for the therapy. So it's very important that they move. So that's a, a way of providing containment and also signaling to the self that we're going now into a different emotional, mental, energetic space um, and easier to, have containment afterwards when they move out of it. So again, the physical shifts are pretty great. Um, so we have them move and then prompt them. You know, so tell the story in third person. So once upon a time, there was a girl, this is what happened to her. Encourage them as they need to. When they get done the first time, then they will do a reset. So that's an opportunity for them to ground themselves. So this is where if we're really concerned about um, flooding, overwhelm, person has an opportunity to reconnect, remember they're in the here and now. They can stand up, move around, breathe, take a sip of water. And then they sit back down and tell the story again. Finish, move around, whatever they want to do. You know, take a little jog around the room. <laughs> so sit back down and then they tell the story again. And then you know, we have some space to debrief make some space for the for the patient to sort of share their observation about the story. You know, oh, I'm telling a story. I'm noticing that I feel some understanding for that little girl. And she was doing her best and it breaks my heart that she blames herself. I don't think she should, whatever it is. Again, allowing that door to very naturally open for that to come in. Um, wrap that up. And then the patient will move away from that storytelling chair, come back in. The therapist will come back because they both moved. And then we debrief together. That's essentially what that is. So it seems it's fairly simple and straightforward. It can be very deep. One thing that Amanda does really well, um, usually on the third time around, we call a deepening technique, 
but she will kind of work with the patient to repeat things. She will say, you know, and then she went into that room, say, you know, th then she went into that room. And this kind of heightens the drama a bit more. It becomes a little bit more, um, I mean, you should describe what you do, but um, that's, you do that so beautifully and so powerfully. I think you, you saw that, you know, now, now um, that, uh, yeah, I'll just talk about a little bit, Amanda, if you want to. Yeah, so as, as you know, the clinician is listening to the story, sort of, and I'm always keeping notes kind of in the back of my mind of what I think are maybe the hot spots of the story, particularly notable moments that maybe wouldn't be what the patient would say was the most difficult part, um, but sort of, sort of getting from them, just based on observation and some intuition, what I think is very meaningful about that story. Is there something about that moment they walked back in, into the room? Or was it something about that detail of, and usually it is, um, this terrible thing was happening and she was a little girl. Or, and she didn't have control. It's so really pulling for, what are some of the things that really make something traumatic? Right? So that's, you know, something was developmentally inappropriate, right? Or something that was particularly really frightening. I mean, trauma is scary, that's why it's traumatic. Um, or there's loss of control. You know, it's always it's always an element of trauma. So really highlighting that, pushing that. Um, it's not about torturing people. I tell my patients that all the time. It's not that I want you to suffer. It's that you are haunted by this, carrying this within you. But my job is to provide the space so you can confront it in a very powerful, moving way. And then trust that that will allow the integration to come in. You, know, you will not integrate these parts of the story. You will come back into yourself. So that is why we use the deepening techniques. Because we believe that we're not trying to dampen down the intensity. We're actually doing the opposite. We want to encourage it to heighten within the specific way of containing and re-experiencing. And then the integration very naturally occurs. One other thing about this, which maybe you're going to get to now, is... Um... You know, we certainly see, we talk to patients, you know, who come in with a, with a trauma story and they uh, say, have you been in therapy before? Yes. Have you ever talked about it? And they say, well, I told the story once and then we never discussed it again in therapy, right? And this is, believe it or not, you know, not an uncommon experience. And why is that? So, you know, trauma stories are disturbing for the patient. Trauma stories are very disturbing for the therapists, right? And, you know, we kind of, our whole body kind of, you know, we would close up, you know, we want to hold ourselves we want to be defended against these stories these are not easy things to to do that but when you take this approach you're creating an approach where you know you're going to do you know it gives the therapist permission to do it repeatedly so what happens for the therapist i think often is that we begin to habituate to the story right you're hearing a story four times in a row five times in a row sometimes we can begin to relax our body shoulders drop a little bit now we get more comfortable. We've also shared it more with the patient. There's a relational component to this as well. So now we have the freedom to actually work with the story, work with very detailed, some of these, you know, even very intimate sexual details, you know, because we feel more comfortable. So this is a huge gift for the therapist. I think most people don't think of it that way, but we, you know, that we can get much more relaxed, much more freedom to work with that. So by telling, you know, telling, teaching people, you're going to do this three or four or five times in a row with your patients. It sets up, I think, a kind of a structure of parameters that will give us permission to get habituated. 
Otherwise, we're kind of, you know, most people are afraid they hear the story once. They don't want to, they're afraid they're going to traumatize the patient or they're upset. But, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, obviously some people do exposure therapy where that's the therapy, but a lot of people say, yeah, I told it once. I never told it again. And um, so anyway. Um, so this chair work has a wide range of potential uses. You know, you can use it for trauma. You can use it for I think things like OCD, um, but your background's in addiction treatment, Scott. And I, we just done this summit on addiction and I'm kind of devastated that I didn't know that your background was in addiction before I finalized the lineup for that. But for how, how can chair work help um, treat addiction? Do you think, and have you, maybe if you've an example of someone that was struggling with an addiction where chair work might've been helpful in some way, I just, uh, I wanted to ask that. Um, I'm thinking on the one hand, why did he invite me to the, to his summit? The other hand going, well, he didn't know, you know, and he invited my friend Andrew Tatarski. So that's good enough to <laughs> 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 play my two sides. <laughs> um, so I think, I mean, so addiction treatment itself is a specific kind of way of working with patients and, you know, Andrew Tatarski. And so he and I you know, have similar perspectives on, on addiction treatment. So in some ways to use chair work with addiction treatment, you have to understand addiction itself. You have to kind of understand how to treat people with addiction. It's not just chairs exactly. It's the one diagnosis where it's, you have to understand the diagnosis more than just do these things. But a couple of things that, you know, the first and foremost, most basic one is there's a part that wants to use the drugs and there's a part that wants to change. Continuation, change, the core thing, right? And inner leader. So you, this dialogue, speak for the part that wants to keep doing what they're doing, speak for the part that wants something different, however that's described. And in, in addiction psychotherapy or harm reduction psychotherapy, we go back to that, or at least I go back to that relentlessly. I'll do it even every session sometimes. I want to keep doing this. This isn't working for me. I want to make a change because that's where the fire is, right? Motivational interviewing is another form of it, but you want to keep that tension, right? So um, I talk about the horizontal and the vertical. So that's the fire for the horizontal, right? So then if I were going to make, all right, so the summit happiness, what is something that you might do, right? So maybe I will... Uh, I often start, I say, how many drinks are you having a week? I'm drinking 30, I'm having 35 drinks a week, right? So they go, okay. So this week we'll start with, let's do, if you're willing, let's set a boundary of 35 drinks a week. You can drink up to 35 drinks a week, but you cannot drink 36. And if you drink 36, we know that something happened, right? So um, Alan Marlad in his book, quoted as Zen saying, to keep the sheep happy, give it a big pasture, right? A beautiful, beautiful saying, right? So we have a very big pasture. So they say, okay, I will, uh, you know, they agree to it because they come, they want to make a change. And so if they do it, they're successful. And if they didn't, if they drank 36, so we can take that story apart. Like what happened here? What was the moment? Let's, let's walk this through. Let's go through the experience. Tell the story of what happened, right? Another way to do that, you know? Another part got up. If you could redo this, what would you say? How would you manage it? So everything's an exploration, right? So that's sort of one way to do it. The other thing is that, you know, many people are inner critic or trauma. It's all over the place. And many people are like, um, 
you know, I, I'm really upset. This voice in my head telling me how bad I am, or I remember terrible abuse, and maybe that needs to get addressed first. We dance between the vertical, the horizontal, and the vertical. You know, that's the that's the beautiful dance. Gradual change. Uh, and then we also can have them talk to the drugs, which is very interesting, and have them actually be the drug, which is very. Drugs are often drugs often don't like the people who are using them. And I often say, he spent $30,000 on you. Don't you love him and or love her? And, nope, I do not. <laughs> I think he's a loser. <laughs> what? You know, it's very funny. And people can be, uh, you know, quite astonished to hear their drugs talking back to them. It'd be really, you know, they've dedicated their life to this relationship with someone who doesn't really care for them. So, uh, you know, let me just give you a brief overview, but there's um, lots of things we can do, but it's all the sort of, you know, intention you know what do you want to do did it work did it not work what happened let's take it apart um and um but again you know i want to keep you know, i want to keep doing this i want to change and this this can be for food this can be for anything right we were all wrestling with these issues um that, that's uh yeah that that's, enough overview that's so interesting like this idea of like the person embodying the drug and taking the drug's perspective and then the drug actually having hate for the person you know i can see that being very helpful in addiction treatment um so something else that is really interesting about your approach that goes against many of the conventional norms of most therapies is that it's very directive you know like you will put words in the client's mouth you will suggest things for them to say and then they will they will say them you know how does this I'm trying to ask here. Can you maybe, Amanda, can you maybe tell us like how this how this works and uh, why do you think it works as well? You know, like to to suggest phrases for them to say, and you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, so in our work, we call that sort of feeding the line. So, make a suggestion. You know, so, say someone's talking, right, talking to the drug, and they say, "I want you to try to say this. Say, you know, I love you, and I'm frightened that you're going to hurt me." Try to say this. So the point of feeding the line isn't to sort of um, enact any sort of agenda that we might have. And of course, you know, therapists are people too. So we might have our own desires and wishes for, for the patient. Um, but in chair work, it's not about us. It's about, it's about them. We sort of facilitate, but no advice. No, it's all about their stuff, their parts, their inner leader. Um, so the purpose of feeding the line is to help them access what's already there, what has already happened. So when I feed a line to someone, it's not because I think it, it would be funny for them to say, um, or because I want them to secretly change their mind about something. It's because I suspect that that is what they may actually feel. And maybe they have been frightened to express that hesitant to express that or felt that they have not had the permission or the space to go there. So again, I see it as a way of advocating for what is in the patient's heart. I'm telling you to say this very difficult thing because I am fighting for you. And if I wait for, and Scott says this all the time, if we wait for patients to get there, many of them will take years to get there. Which is when I'm with them, I can sense, oh, I feel like you know, you're, you're talking to your spouse and I'm my spidey sense, and I say, this feeling that maybe there's a part of you that's that's really in grief here at this lost connection. 
But if I wait for that person to get there, they might stay in anger, right? People like staying in anger because it's more protective. People want to avoid grief and things like sadness or resentment even. If I feed a line so someone can explore that, they can try it. If it doesn't work, that's fine. That means we got information. Okay, we're barking up the wrong tree. That's helpful. We learned something. But if it's right, now things can really, really speed up and deepen. So that is how I advocate for people. That's how we advocate for the work, keep it on track. Um, so it's not that we're, it's, so I will tell people, it's not my idea that I think this is what your inner critic thinks you know, about you because I want you to hear bad things because I'm sensing this is the battle that's actually going on. Um, it's not what I feel about you, but I think this is what actually is happening. So this is how I will fight for you. It's, it strikes me that this approach requires the therapist to be a highly developed and integrated person themselves in order to give that kind of guidance. You know, I wouldn't want to be taken, I wouldn't want to be receiving these lines from someone that I didn't trust. Do you know what I mean? Like it would need to be someone that I really trusted. So that, that strikes me as very important. Um, I would say it actually helps to develop trust and rapport. Because when someone feels that, oh my gosh, you, you had me say that thing. And I just, oh no, I'm weeping, right? I feel so moved by that. Wow, you really get me. So it's a way for someone to feel really seen and understood and felt for. Um, what I think is incredibly unique and powerful. And then it gives them the option too to opt out. Well, if I say it once, it is a fit, cool, you know, no harm done, it's fine. We'll move on. But I think it's actually an incredible way to deepen the therapeutic relationship and alliance. I'm showing you through the feeding the lines that I am so in touch with what, what your desire is or what's in your heart or what your pain is that I'm supporting you and opening that door. Yeah, I've experienced it firsthand. Did I say, did, um, it was Scott and I still, I'm not going to repeat it, but I still remember the exact line that Scott repeated back to me. So it's, it's powerful. Um, so just a couple now to wrap up guys. Uh, what are the major things to avoid in chair work? Like, is there anything that people might do that they definitely should not do? Um, we go to Scott for this one, maybe. Um, nothing so um, I think it's coming to mind overwhelmingly I guess you know, I, I, in general small steps I mean I would say that's kind of you know, the metaphor right of you, you know start gently do a little bit you know you slowly swim out to deeper water, right? And most people just do that organically. Most, most therapists are pretty terrified of this technique. To be honest, when they're starting, they're not they're not like running out to, you know, do incredible things. Um, but as you get more confidence, you swim more deeply. I mean, Amanda and I are just, you know, we've just done 10, we've done 10,000 steps we need to, we're on our journey. And that's why we can do these things. But there's a series of small actions that we did and a little bit further. Um, in general, there's a bias in the field. Most therapists are afraid afraid of the, the patients getting too emotional, right? There's, you know, and as the wise people have taught us, you know, patients want to do work. They can they can do a lot of work. They can, you know, 
they can deal with a lot of emotion and you don't get better with anxiety if you don't experience these emotions. But you do have to, you know, you have to pay attention and you don't want to go too far and just check in with them. If it's like, and storytelling, sometimes like I can tell, only tell the story once. That's fine. That's what we can do today. You know, and, and Amanda talks about, they can tell one sentence. That's all they can say. That's fine. So you got to be in touch with your patients, you know. Um, and um, I would say, you know, it's um, do the chair work yourself, you know, and if you're in therapy, even if your therapist doesn't do chair work, just do chair work and have the therapist witness because that the witness amplifies things and do chair work by yourself. I do chair work by myself all the time. And that, you know, is a self-practice. I mean, we, we have a paper out on, on chair work as a self-practice. Um, it's very helpful. It gets you more comfortable with it. Uh, and, you know, I would say, you know, reading our writings, reading the books, you know, we're, we're basically storytellers and, um, you know, getting that in your system will be helpful. Yes, I guess the main thing is, you know, um, watch watch their anxiety, watch your own anxiety. You know, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, maybe don't don't do that thing today if it doesn't feel, you don't feel you're there yet. But in general, you know, if a patient can do psychotherapy, they can do chair work. It doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is. It doesn't matter who the patient is. But you won't need to adjust for speed or intensity or, you know, content. But it's really in a profoundly universal way of working. And um, gotten very few bad reports from people. You know, one, somebody's kind of pushed too hard on a patient. You know, kind of, they got, they got pushed back. The patient was very upset with it, but that was very rare. So amazing. Okay. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to reconnect and uh, have this conversation. Where can people, if someone wants to uh, learn more, dive deeper, um, how can they find more about your upcoming tra trainings? And maybe you want to tell us about your, your book as well, Scott? I feel I'll let Amanda do the, she's like our expert here on how to reach us. And I'll tell you about the book after that. So, um, so can people can find more details about our work, uh, various articles, our training schedule for upcoming events on chairworkpsychotherapy.com. So that's our, that's our website, chairworkpsychotherapy.com. Um, can also connect with us, you know, in other various spaces online, uh, Instagram at Transformational Chairwork, Facebook at Transformational Chairwork, LinkedIn. Uh, we're on LinkedIn under our, our sort of um, more official title, Chairwork Psychotherapy Initiative. My social media intern, who is myself, um, has yet to sort out how to uh, change the handle on, on Instagram and Facebook. So we still have the old <laughs> social media handle, but you know. Intern's doing her best. <laughs> but yes, chairpsychotherapy.com. Cool, cool. Okay. And the book, Scott? So the book is Transformational Chairwork Using Psychotherapeutic Dialogues in Clinical Practice. And basically, so it came out nine years ago. And this book represents kind of the, you know, a first major phase of my work. And it's really a book of stories. Um, and I think some there's a part of me that goes, it's just like, this this is really cool and i want to share I, I want to share cool things with people so mostly it's stories of other people and and of how they use chair work and i just like the, the best stories i could find and i put them all together in a book and then i created scripts so people can really have scripts they can really like play them out they can act them out by themselves or with somebody else 
for all these different diagnoses and you know and i've, I've kind of i tried to make it somewhat realistic but the patient goes i don't i don't get what you're talking about you know i put little things like that in there so i had a little playwriting uh, experience um and people report they find the book to be helpful and you know i i put all the love i had into that book and i think the stories are great and um so i think it's a you know um i think it's a great book to start to start with because it's really um broad overview and um i've had an interesting kind of dialogue with the the schema therapy people and what you know uh and and uh remco his name is vander winter just published a book on chair work for second for schema therapists which is a fantastic book um and the dialogue we were having was they were saying to me we want you to create chair work for schema therapists how to use chair work in schema therapy in the structure of the therapy. And I was just saying, I want to teach people how to use chair work more broadly and then apply it to their specific therapies. So like, let me teach you how to play the violin, then you can play Bach versus let's let's learn how to play Bach, right? So that was kind of a, a dialogue we had. So this is kind of like a broad way of using chair work, which you can then apply to any any of your, uh, your therapy that you're um, doing. You can integrate it. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I love the book. I think it's great. And uh, so. Fantastic. So chair work is sort of like the umbrella and all of the different approaches can fit underneath that umbrella because it's big enough and it's trans-theoretical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's trans-theoretical as a technique or, a or you can just only do chair work, which is what I do. My entire clinical practice is, is chair work psychotherapy and, and the creation of the four dialogues and the, the guiding principles gives the framework for this to be a fully fleshed out, effective standalone modality. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I've said the chair work itself is too powerful for any one therapy to control it. It's just like this incredibly dynamic force, you know, that everybody tries it, but nobody can control it, you know? So it's amazing. It's very unique, actually, in psychotherapy. It is. Uh... It is definitely powerful and forceful. We when we did that uh, that that three day workshop, you were saying, you know, be careful when you leave here because you're in an altered state, and it really was like that. It really does have an effect on you, you know. Um, but we do need to change the name to shift work if it's gonna uh, develop beyond this. You know, space work. Get some, <laughs> space you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd Partner work. up uh, with the space agencies, space exploration. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Right. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. I want to wish you all the best with your efforts going forward. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors and authors unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.